Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Zane Hatahat. Zane's an associate in Foley's Detroit office focused on securities and other transactional matters. As usual for the path and the practice, this is an extremely wide-ranging conversation. Of course, we hit the things you'd expect us to talk about. Zane talks about his path to college, and he talks about his decision to attend the University of Michigan Law School. He also tells us about his transactional practice. But woven in between those stake posts, Zane reflects on the importance of his parents and his family. He talks a bit about his multicultural background. You will hear him talk about everything from time he spent in Dubai, because his dad is from Damascus, Syria, to visiting family in Scotland where he delivered a lamb. (laughs) So I hope that's not too much of a spoiler for our conversation, but this discussion is just so wide-ranging. You will hear fantastic advice about navigating the first few years of legal practice, and also Zane reflects on being a lateral associate to Foley and Lardner, which you will also learn I didn't realize until we were well in our conversation. But this was a really fun one. I suspect that there was a lot more I should have asked about Zane. And so I hope that you enjoy our discussion. And if there's more you'd like to learn about him, you should feel free to reach out. Zane, welcome to the podcast. Let's just dive right in and have you give your professional intro. So hi, everybody. uh, And thank you, Alexis, for hosting me. My name is Zane Hatahat. I'm a sixth year, I think, fifth, sixth year associate with Foley and Lardner in the Detroit office. So it's been about six years. I actually just circulated a photo from my graduation since I finished at the University of Michigan Law School. They since have gotten rid of the Summer Start program. But I think, uh, Alexis, you were in that program as well. I was in that program. And yeah, let's just dive right in because I saw that picture that you put on LinkedIn. And I and it just so happened to be that a few days ago on my Facebook memories, because I had shared a photo from graduation in December, and I just saw this photo. And you were like, oh, share a photo if you have one. So I did. And I was like, and so here's me 13 years ago. And here's Larry Perlman, <laughs> who so I've cool. also had on the podcast. But yeah, we were both summer starters. And for those who don't know, at the University of Michigan, They used to, and for a long time, started a full section of the law school class, their one-out class, over summer. Yeah. So it it was a fun program, May through May, and then one full year, and then just one fall semester. So you got to do things faster, too, which is nice. did. And it's one of the reasons why, because so as much as the point of this show is for people to learn about different Foley attorneys, if you listen to more than a couple of episodes, you learn a lot about me as well. And I'll talk about how I went straight through from undergrad to law school and how I actually had about two weeks off between graduating from undergrad and going to law school. And that is why it's because I was a summer starter. And I was like, sure, let's just keep this thing going. And then the other great thing about being a summer starter is one, it almost makes you sound like you're extra smart because you finished law school. You're like, yeah, I just did a little faster than everybody else. Yeah. (laughs) And then also you can be flexible as to your JD date because you graduate in December. And if you need me to round up, I can. If you want to call me class of 08, that's fine. But if you need me to be class of 07, that's also technically true. (laughs) 
Yeah, I agree. You get that <laughs> double benefit. And I never correct people when they're like, oh, I, I guess you, you were advanced, right? No one, no one finishes that quickly. I'm like, that's right. Sure. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly right. All right. Well, let's give even more context around around this discussion. And actually, let's let's start at the beginning. So, Zane, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So, I was actually born in the city of Detroit, the actual city. I think the part of town is called New Center. It's Henry Ford Hospital. And for the most part, I spent my life in Michigan. But as a pretty much as a baby through when I was in elementary school age, I actually lived in Dubai in the uh, United Arab Emirates. So my dad's an immigrant. He's from Damascus. And his family had gone to Dubai because of the situation in Syria, which was bad even many, many decades ago. And at the time, Dubai was really nothing. It wasn't even in the 90s when I was there as a kid. So my memories are not what people would associate with what Dubai means today. It's old coffee shop that matters a lot to me, a couple old bookstores. And sadly, a lot of that stuff is disappearing over time. I try to prioritize going back. But in any event, yeah, by the time I was back in Michigan, it was like around 1996, started school. And what grade was that when you say, so 96 was, that was, you said elementary school is when you? Like kindergarten. And my elementary school is actually like three blocks away from where I live now, ironically, as is my high school. So it's funny, I'm close to all the places I studied and even Ann Arbor for law school, it's only 35 minutes away. So my present town is Dearborn, which is like um, hometown of Henry Ford, for people who don't know that suburb of Detroit. And I'll start by saying that in the career fair in kindergarten, they asked me what I wanted to be. You usually get like very, very aspirational things like I want to be an astronaut or whatever. I actually told people, because my parents remember this, I said, I want to be an attorney or a general. And I wasn't confusing it with attorney general. I wanted to be in the military or be a lawyer. And I don't know why. And that's just something that I've always wanted to do. So for starters, this is something I always wanted to do, practicing law. That's amazing. And it's that's what these podcasts do. They jog memories of my my own childhood. But I was also one of those people who always knew. I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer from a very young age. But, you know, as you said, kind of reaching for the stars, picking you know, careers that maybe aren't as attainable when you're young. When I was really young, I wanted to be an astronaut because that's what you're supposed to want to do when you're like three or four. And I was recently talking to my dad about that. This is, sorry, this is dark humor. So apologies if this offends anybody. (laughs) But I saw the Challenger explode back in the eighties. And I mean, I probably, I had to have been like two or three years old. I was not, but I I even remember like going to my mom and being like, Hey, this, and she's like, didn't believe me. But then my dad was like, yeah, I recall that even changed your uh, profession, (laughs) which I just thought it was so because I was like, yeah, it was really decided. And then I had this pivotal moment. But anyway, so yeah, then I think after that, I decided on, on lawyer at a very young age. But I like that you're also a part of that club. And here's the thing everyone's different. There's a lot of people who, you know, they're in their 20s, maybe closer to 30 before they realize the path. But there are some of us who, for whatever reason, do you know why, by the way, you had those two things in, in, your, in your mind as possible things to do when you grew up? If I had to guess, you know, I think the immigrant background, and it's for both my parents, my mom is more from like a British and Polish background. It's very, very mixed. I'm highly oversimplifying. My parents themselves both come from mixed backgrounds. But I think that there was a real narrative and spirit with immigrants in in the U.S. in the day. Still now it's true where education is so important, having the right profession is so important, and they wanted a better life. I have two older sisters, and then I'm the youngest and the only son. They really encouraged study, 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 work hard. And I bet they were doing that. I say I bet because some of it's nascent memories that I can't really pin the first day we discussed X, Y, or Z. But I think that's just been their narrative. It was the narrative of my grandparents as well, only one of whom is still alive. 
And, you know, I have to say it's grounded in a still a very sensible, I think, pragmatic view of the world. But I would say the other reason is I just think that when you come from a verbose family, which my family certainly is, you have to compete to make a point at the dinner table. That probably lends itself to just playing to your strengths. And I think from a young age, people could tell with me, you know, my, that is my teachers, my parents, that my aptitudes lay or lied, I'm not sure the right past tense, in like written and spoken ways. So I think part of it was just like a natural fit. It's some early training. And okay, so you've said plenty, but I'm going to push a little bit more because I feel like there may be more to learn. I now have this idea of a five-year-old Zane who, or five or six, who spent most of his life up until that point in the United Arab Emirates and who knows he wants to be an attorney or a general. What was childhood like for you? I don't know if it's fair to ask, but sort of what type of kid were you? If I fast forwarded to say middle school, what are you into? Yeah, I I was bookish. I was never shy. I know always and never is is disqualifying language, but I was not an introvert. I was an extrovert. I still am. I think I ironically have like aged in reverse. The older I get, the more calm I am. I think I was a very aggressive kid and not aggressive in the ordinary ways. I've I've always been, I mean, I'll put it this way. I have every paper, every toy, every piece of artwork, artwork, you know, school art that I've ever made and it's organized and it's stowed away and it's labeled. So I was very organized. Wow there. Yes, you were very organized. Go on. (laughs) But I think I took things too seriously. And I think the older I get, I take things less seriously. And I don't know why that is. And I, I think there's like a stoicism amongst my family members. It's kind of like a it's a personality trait, but it runs deeper than that. So I think I was very serious. I think if people talk to me, even through elementary school, I would already have a narrative for them about why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's like, I have to get good grades to get into the best school, to get the best job. And that's it. And I, I didn't want to engage in too many extracurriculars. I thought they were a waste of time. I've been reflecting on that a lot lately. And I really kind of regret that. I don't know. I, you know, as they say, it's only life after all. <laughs> it's a, right. It's only life, but it also there's that sampling period, and I, and maybe it's a little bit different, but I think I join you in a bit of that regret in the sense that I, I was somebody who, you know, I w- went straight through. Like I said, took two weeks off between law school and undergrad. Would not change the the trajectory of my life, but in many ways, the sort of freedom and that sampling period that some people get. But also, I dare say some of that is likely cultural and that, you know, if you did grow up in a family where you don't really feel like you have the privilege of being like, oh, well, I'm just going to move here and get a job and see what happens. <laughs> They're like, what are you doing? You need to be getting a degree in X or Y. But I definitely see the benefit of when you don't have, you know, perhaps as much responsibility and particularly when you're, you know, a kid to do different things because you can. So I hear you in that. Yeah. And I I should say as well, I I had a very, very lucky childhood. There's no accounting for it. You know, no one one knows why they're born, I'm sure. But every day, the other thing that increases with me is a sense of appreciation for my parents, my older siblings, my family. They mean so much to me and even even teachers do. And, And the older I got, I think even by the end of high school, I had really kind of come out of my shell. I was much more social in a friend way to people than I was in a, I'm just here to get a transcript and leave. Yeah, to be the robot. Yeah, to be the academic robot. Well, and now I have to ask because this is recorded. I, I hope maybe your family will listen to this. Are there any examples of 
what created or made that lucky childhood or certain things that you look back and you have a lot of gratitude for? Absolutely. And I think that it can be helpful to people who are pursuing this kind of profession. I didn't have TV a lot growing up. When we were overseas, we had like, I want to say two stations. One was Australian, one was British. So it was like BBC and I think it was called Star from Australia. But then coming over here, it took actually many years before we had like ordinary cable, meaning Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, sort of Disney, the sort of stuff that people would watch at that age. And I remember Nickelodeon at nighttime had Nick at night and they would have these messages, including like the family table. I think that was one of their marketing campaigns. And this would this would be like probably late 90s, early 2000s. In any event, it just stressed the importance of getting together with your family and talking. And it's so funny because I really pretty much never got into trouble when I was younger. Didn't even have that kind of curiosity, really, to do the stuff that kids often do that's problematic. Part of that was my parents treated me like an adult. We had dinner a lot, so that I, I want to close that point off. You know, we typically shared meals. I think my dad, being an immigrant, the way he cooks, even to this day, is very impactful. And it shapes, frankly, the way that I prepare food now and like what I do. I'm not only just someone who's lonely if I don't have someone to eat with, but I can't cook for just one. I mean, I, I theoretically could, but the way he does it and the way that I do it is just, it's for an army. And, you know, that way I always got to check in. I, I had two parents. There's a lot of these privileges that, you know, I'm definitely aware of. But that was so important to be able to talk. And we were very much raised in the Socratic method. So to the adult point, nothing was off, what's the expression, off the table in terms of what was permissible subject matter. Yeah, nothing's off limits. Yeah, off limits. That's what, thank you. So that meant that even if there were existential questions, and I had parochial education, so first it was with a Lutheran school, then it was with a Catholic school. And then between my both sides of my family, there's there's Muslims, there's Jews, there's Christians. So it's a big mix, a big mix of like being raised in those traditions. It didn't matter what the question was, even why are we here and what is God and this and that. It was so funny because my parents would almost always ask me to, what do I know? Like basically, what do I think? What have I learned so far? And even small technical things, which I think is huge to prepare people for being a lawyer, like I'd ask them, what does this word mean? They said, the dictionary's right there, pick it up. So they were very much about being hands-on, being communicative, and being open. So they, they were very much parents, but I'm not going to say they were also friends. They were more parents and mentors, like my earliest teachers. Yeah, the teaching, the preparing you for life. Thank you so much for elaborating on that. I could ask so many more questions and I won't because you could, people can probably tell I would do a totally different podcast. Like I would do like three hour long deep dive podcasts, but we will pick up on the path to law. But I really appreciate you elaborating on that. I think it's a lot of good insight likely into who you are and kind of how you're wired the way that you are. But okay, so with that, that understanding, let's say you've hit, I don't know if it's high school or it's college. What was that process like for you? Did you know what you wanted to do in college? Where did you go to college? Just tell me more about that that stage of your life. Yeah. So frankly, by the time it was like junior high, like seventh, eighth grade, the exact narrative was not, it depended on the audience. So my dad, and again, and this is definitely a cultural thing, was very much about specifically medical school. So that's what you do and didn't want to hear much else. So it's interesting. I was exposed through Foley's coach, actually, uh, Anjali Desai, to the, uh, to the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. And that, was, that is probably the most valuable book I've ever read that's like a piece of nonfiction that's meant to help you. Growth mindset, right? Carol Dweck is the growth mindset. Yeah. So if you hear her name, it's just growth mindset. Yes. But go on. <laughs> yeah. And the reason I bring that up is 
there are some real fixed mindsets depending on the people who raise you and how they raise you. And the medical school thing and being top of your class was a very fixed mindset on my dad's side of the family in particular. So as I aged, it became much more about, because I had my oldest sister seven years older than me. So she was she was doing things and getting into college and all that like well before I was doing that kind of stuff. So they were getting that exercise through and she did become a doctor. And then my older sister also became a doctor. So I think they thought, well, this is natural. He's just going to do this. I had actually no intention of practicing medicine. My dad kept on saying, doctor, doctor. And my mom would be like, oh yeah, you know, he's totally right. That's the pretty much the best choice. We would then talk separately and my mom would say, you do what you want to do and you know, we'll work out the details later. So bottom line, by high school, you had a counselor. They weren't that involved. It was certainly nothing like what it is once you get to more like college or law school or whatever. But I actually just kept on saying, because they would go to your parents and they would always disclose things that like, yeah, I'm going to be a cardiologist. I just picked that because that was what my dad's best friend does. And I figured that won't raise any suspicions. I actually love science. I had this crazy science fair project in the day. The title was a comparative analysis of quantum dot nanotechnology and standard fluorophores. I turned 16 at the International Science Fair. So I, I loved and I still love science, but I didn't want to do it for work. I didn't want to go to medical school. And I figured it was stable to say that I would because I, I probably could have if I tried. And at any rate, so there's just this conflict because you know now it's funny. I remember I, the day I told my dad that I was going to do law school, was in undergrad. It was in July or August of 2010. I actually had a tour scheduled at University of Michigan Law School, which is nothing like it is now. They used to have a parking lot, which they had actually just like leveled or raised, whatever the best word is, to make what's, I think the name now changed, but it was it started off as South Hall. And I, I came back with a pamphlet. I remember that day and I approached my dad and I handed it to him. And I'm like, by the way, this is what I'm actually doing. And I'm a history major, not studying you know biology or whatever. Ooh, okay. What was his response? He totally approved. He thought that that was great. And the fact that I had thought through it meant more to him than, you know, impulsively I was changing things. So you were being intentional. Yeah. So we, we, we talked more about it over time, but there was just never any doubt in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. And I think I always wanted to be a corporate lawyer. So I didn't, I should have mentioned that from the start. I'm in the transactional practice group. I always wanted to do that because it just felt different. Like while I'm working for large companies, they're the heart and soul of the economy, so to speak. And it doesn't feel as bad if you're in a high paid job, but you're doing it for companies with complex work and you're just pushing things through, helping things proceed, I guess. I don't know why it felt better to me. Like the way that I would earn my living through law felt more clean, I don't know, than anything else. We may follow up on this, but I want to close one one loop here, which is that, and I hear you in terms of how you ended up settling or eventually even disclosing to your dad or your family law school. But I just wanted to mention, so you went to the University of Michigan for undergrad as well, just so that we, so people might be curious. So where did you go to college? And then it sounds like maybe going in, it was like, okay, maybe I'll look into this science or medical thing. But when you started college, was history always your your major? Yeah. Initially, I arbitrarily declared it as English because at the time I, I didn't exactly know what I was going to do. And they said, well, a lot of what you're doing is going to count. So just so I, I think I I think by November of my first semester, which was fall of 2008, I had figured that out. And there is one also important piece, which is a, a lot of what I've done, even down to still staying in Detroit, is also oriented around family. So for anyone who's curious, who listens and like, can I make that work? I certainly did. I, I got the job that I dreamt of and wanted. And I never got that far from home. 
I really wanted to go to Yale for undergrad. One of the awards I had won for my science fair project, ironically, was um, Most Outstanding Project from their science and engineering group because they had people that would tour the International Science Fair and the one in Detroit, CEFMED, the Science and Engineering Fair Metropolitan Detroit. And I, I had the grades and test scores and stuff. I, I really could have gone pretty much anywhere. But the ties to home were really, really hard to break. And my dad had a brain aneurysm in 2008, which is the year I graduated from high school. And luckily, extraordinarily luckily, he was fine. Uh, most people aren't. And I was like, you know, I had a full ride to the Dearborn campus. I had small money at the Ann Arbor campus. It was on me financially. And I was like, you know, I don't want to go out of state. I don't even want to go to the Ann Arbor campus for undergrad. I had a full ride at Dearborn. So for clarity, I actually went to the Dearborn campus at the University of Michigan. And from the get-go, it was for law. It was not. And that is just so important, what what you've said. And I, I don't want to use this too much as a teaching moment, but I will a little bit because particularly when, I, when I'm, you know, taking off my podcast host hat and put on my director of DNI hat, this is something that we have to talk more about when it comes to how we find talent and the different motivations people have, because within large law firms, often it's like, you know, and you, you know, you did go to a top 10 law school, but, but even then, I still think your story shows how there's so many other things that affect the decision that someone makes around their education. That is not just a matter of like, where's the best place? You know, there's family, and there's different values, by the way, depending on cultural backgrounds or socioeconomic status or whatever. And the thing is, we just don't necessarily talk about it a lot, but we all live it, right? We've all, most of us have had some sort of pull to family, or even if you decide to move away, there's probably some decision making that happened in there. So I just, I just really appreciate that you, that you shared that because I'm certain that so many people who listen will have been like, yeah, I made the exact same decision, but I just don't hear people talk about it that often. Right. Yeah. Incidentally, that's this podcast is awesome. The series is great. I think that is really helpful because there's a certain lack of candor that you've seen in the past with the legal profession. And I tell people this all the time that you could ask me almost anything, even my blood type, and I'll tell you because I just don't see the value in keeping things away from people, especially if they're younger. One of the best ways to learn how to negotiate and be a good lawyer or be a good anything. I mean, I think every job involves communication on some level is to talk. And we're in an era of extreme student loan debt burdens. We're in an era of a lot of companies still insist on not you know, disclosing what their pay policies are, which can create a number of issues, a huge number of issues. And I just think that if people talked more and they were more willing to share what they're going through and how they're strategizing to get all the things they want out of life and maintain work-life balance, the best way to do it is to sit down and talk actual detail. Absolutely. Yes. And there's nuance to it. And there is something to be said for not feeling like you're the only person who's ever encountered this situation. So, you know, we're, we're going to talk more about your academic path and about law school. But I think when you're in law school and you know that thousands of people, probably, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands have had the path before you, but you can't help but feel like, how do I do this? I'm the only person who's ever done this before. Nobody's really being as straightforward with me. And my goal for the show is for everyone, and then I have a lot of goals, but one of them is our paths are all unique. You know, you're going to have a bunch of factors that are unique to you. But I do hope that ultimately, after I've done enough of these, that most people, if they listen to all the shows at least, would probably find somebody who had something similar to them, who had either something personality-wise that reminded them of their self, themselves, a family dynamic, a professional. I don't know, but you'll probably hear something where you're like, oh yeah, I've had that same thing. And maybe it makes you feel a little more okay about being human 
and okay about not knowing, you know, not being endowed with the knowledge of a 30 plus year partner at a large law firm. But okay, so let's keep going. You, University of Michigan, the Dearborn campus, and then the University of Michigan for law school. So given what you just said about staying close to family, was it like Michigan is where I want to go? Or what, what was that process like for you? I wanted Michigan by far. It was my top choice. I mean, I, I dreamt of Yale like I did for undergrad, for law school. And, you know, what's interesting is it wasn't till almost the end of undergrad. There was a professor, uh, name is Lawrence Radine. He's since his retired, really eccentric guy. I think in his retirement, he's now just doing like welding art, like metal sculpting art. He lived in a van in France for a period of time. He has a crazy life story, but he was a wonderful mentor. And I, I kept on emphasizing to him, I'm like, oh, I have to finish the top of my class. I have to have really good LSAT score um, because I have to get into the number one law school. So I definitely wanted Michigan, but I also was like, I was not going to foreclose my options. I was going to apply to the top 10 schools, T14, as they say, so top 14. And I really wanted Yale. But what was interesting is that professor at the very end, he was a history and a sociology professor. He asked me, um, and in the honors program, he actually taught this really valuable little I think they called it a tutorial. It was like less than 10 people, but it was to wrap up your progress through the honors program at the school. It's a wonderful program. And he said, well, why, why do you want to go to Yale so badly? And I said, well, Yale is the best. And he goes, well, why is Yale the best? I could only tell him one thing that I had learned, ironically, touring at Michigan. The admissions officer at Michigan back in August of 2010 or so had at the very end of the walk, there was like a plaque, I want to say, with all these employers' names on it. And they were like showing off, oh, well, you have all these people come from, you know, for on-campus interviews and we place X number of people and they had the pamphlets and the stats. But the one thing that they also pointed out was they're like, did you know? And I was trained to do this later because I became a uh, tour guide for the law school, like helping out for that for people who are considering it. It, it might have changed, but the only two states' laws that allow you to practice in a student clinic in your second year and third year instead of just your third year are Connecticut and Michigan. So the only two top 10 schools where you can practice in a clinic for two of the three years in law school are Yale and Michigan. That was actually like a substantive point that I could make. Other than prestige and maybe access, like a very weak argument, like, well, you know, they've got so much, you know, so many resources, how, how could it not be the top choice? And then that point about clinics, he was like, I don't think you've thought this through very well. And I think you need to pick based on other factors. So, and, you know, those factors include where do you want to live in the end? You know, he said, if you go to a top school, you can pretty much write your ticket and go anywhere. So he goes, that doesn't matter. He goes, scholarships, that's a big point. Like if you get a full ride to NYU, should you really insist on going to Columbia if they're not going to give you any any money? So, you know, he opened my mind to different considerations. And, and ultimately, in the end, Michigan just has such a great reputation. And what really appealed to me is I, I actually made a an effort to learn about the law school's history. And they were actually really significant in a number of like social progress ways. So I, I know I'm going to get some of these points wrong, but I think they were the first law school to admit a woman as a student. I think they were the first to admit a person of color. And if not, they were right at the start, like right at the front of all of that. And we were also trained when we did the tours for the law school to bring up a historical fact, which was, I think it was like Columbia or NYU it was one of the top schools in New York had not taken that action yet. And the dean at Michigan Law in like, I don't know, the 1850s, 1860s, wrote a letter to the dean of one of those schools and said, hey, catch up with the times. So we were trained to say that. I Forgive me for not remembering the exact specifics, but the school always had a really positive narrative. It always had a really positive 
emphasis on on things that were not necessarily traditional in, in the legal realm. And I, if they weren't the first as well, they were close to being the first at the clinic for human trafficking. They've done amazing work in that way. And for veterans and for so many different groups of marginalized people or people who have disadvantages. And that really appealed to me. And the sense of collegiality, I think, at Michigan is it speaks for itself. And I, I didn't want to go to a school that was super, super aggressive and people are isolated because I actually knew this about myself. I tend to isolate myself. And I knew at that age, I was still doing that more than I ought to. So I wanted to be in an, an environment that would force me to interact with people and, and you know, I meet the many great people you hear about that become alums of that school. I'm saying we have to be so careful to not just turn this podcast into the like Michigan law propaganda. We're here for Foley propaganda. So we, but right. but what I do think is interesting is that you were a tour guide. So even though you're apologizing for not remembering every, every little detail, you obviously, I think, do have a lot of knowledge about the University of Michigan. And I'm like tempted to probe that more, but I won't. But also the fact that we were both summer starters. And as much as we will continue on to talk about, about your your career and, and Foley, this, for all I know, may be the first ever podcast with two Michigan law summer starters on talking about it. This might be a historical moment right now. I'm not sure. Making history. <laughs> exactly. But I think the, the bottom line though, and for those, you know, I've I actually just the other day connected with somebody who's taking a gap year from Yale undergrad who very much thinks she wants to go into law school. So maybe I can say we're even getting some people who have not quite yet started law school listening. You know, I think the bottom line is most people are huge fans of where they attended law school. There are so many great schools. We are both biased for Michigan because that is what we know. And, you know, not to disparage anyone else, but obviously I, I think that's fantastic and we share a similar, similar path. So what was it that caused you to end up doing the summer starter program and not waiting to start at a more traditional time? You know, I, I hope they bring it back because the answer is simple. The minute I knew that was even an option, it, there was no doubt in my mind that's what I wanted. The efficiency was a big thing. So what it meant to me is the sooner I finish, the sooner I can take the bar exam. I knew it was twice a year and I knew one was earlier. I didn't know it was in February, but that was really great. You know, come March, I'll, I'll have practiced for six years because I was able to do the February bar exam and then start practicing in March. So it just meant that I could start my life sooner. And, you know, I, I didn't have like an allowance. I worked in undergrad, but it was very much like academic oriented. One of it was a, I had a co-op with Bodman, another firm in Detroit as a banking clerk. So I wanted to get my life started and I wanted to have a house and I wanted to get married and do all those things. And for me, culturally, and this is true for my sisters as well, like we, we didn't date, didn't go to dances, didn't do a lot of things that might be more typical for other people growing up in America or who grew up more organically or you know several generations in. So I'm not saying I had a repressed childhood and youth by any measure, but what I mean is certain things you could only really have once you were ready for them. And the narrative from like, the, the, in particular, the men in my family was, if you're even bothering to date someone, you need to be able to provide for our family, period. And interestingly, on both sides of my family, that was not born out of you know misogyny or anything like that. It was more just, no matter what, you need to be responsible. So if anything happens, you can account for it. I'm happy to say that it's part of, I think, the path to education in professional school for me in law school. I think even my great-grandmother on my dad's side was educated, had a college degree. My grandmothers on both sides did. So I came from a family on both sides, even though they were totally different parts of the world where that was really valued. Education was just a huge emphasis. But yeah, I, I kind of just wanted to get started. So the summer start, I, I, I said it was simple, but I, I took too long. The summer start just meant I could start my life sooner. I'm a May birthday as well. So I was turning 21 that month and I was like, 
yeah, of course I should start now. Let's do this. I had a similar thing, right? I didn't have any particular plans. I knew I was going to law school. They were like, hey, do you want to start? And I was like, sure. It beats being at home for an extra summer. Let's let's do this. I think you may have been more thoughtful, but I was like, okay. Okay. So at this point, and I'm mindful of this for all of our attorneys, you're you're a little bit closer to law school than when I'm talking to some of our partners, but do you have any recollections about what it was like starting law school, adjusting to that life? Was it great? Was it hard? How was it for you? Yeah, several observations. So first, I like you, I, I think I had just maybe a few weeks that I took off where I wasn't working because I worked even after I graduated from undergrad. So in that like floating semester from January through May of 2012, I saved up enough money to go visit family I have in Britain. So they live way in the Scottish Highlands. And I had just enough money to fly out and see them. And at that point, luckily, you know, you have room and board because your family is providing that. It was very funny. My first night in Scotland, I think this might just be fun story to share. My cousin, she feels more like an aunt, but she's actually a cousin of my mom's. So it feels like a cousin. She goes, you know, if, if you visit, it's the lambing season. And I said, I, I have no idea what the lambing season is. And she goes, well, that's when all the baby lambs are born. And they're farmers. They have all kinds of like highland cattle, those really shaggy cows and sheep. So I arrived in the deep, deep part of the evening in a town called Fern, which is truly isolated. And it was the second to final stop, the penultimate stop on the way to Tain, which is a really old Scottish town. And there was only one other person on this little train that got me there in the end. Like that was the final leg of the journey. And the conductor had actually crossed it off the board, Fern, as a stop. And I, I had panicked because it was like 2 a.m. and I was in a foreign country. And I, I, I told the conductor, I'm like, sir, you have to stop in Fern. That's where my family is. And he, he told me his exact words were, ain't nobody in Fern, Lottie. He said, there's nobody in Fern. And I, I said, well, my family's there. And, and then he goes, okay. He goes, you're not going to like what you see. It's like pitch black. And sure enough, the train station in Fern in Scotland is like a box and a light like on a, oh on a post. <laughs> and that's it. So you can step down. And I stepped down and bagpipes started playing. It was my family. So they were welcoming me in. We got into an old VW microbus and drove to their home, which is more of like a, an estate. It's a beautiful old stone house. It was 3 a.m. I've never seen stars like that to this day. Uh, you see shooting stars everywhere. And my other cousin then, who's more like an uncle, he goes, well, you're, you're on my farm. He goes, so you're going to work on my farm while you're here. And that very night, within 10 minutes, they had me suited up and I helped them deliver a baby lamb one of my life's finest memories. But the reason that's relevant is because I knew that that was going to be like the last time I could really probably do something fun. and Before law school starts. Like deliver, you got to go ahead and get the delivering a lamb in before you start law school. Everyone, that knows, was a bucket everyone list. knows that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I, I knew it would be intense. And sure enough, you know, uh, law school was. And I think that Michigan really was a great environment, very tolerant environment. I mean, extraordinary people, stories you couldn't even, I mean, you, you would know. It was such a mind-opening experience, even the first night I was there. And even though I come from a verbose family, it was refreshing and intimidating to see how, how diverse people's opinions and perspectives were. You had to learn to interact with an entirely new group of people, and they were not inclined to agree with you on anything. And you know, I, I was used to being disagreed with, and I was used to debating things, but law school is an entirely different environment, even at a collegial school like Michigan. So, Yes. Well, and also as a summer starter, you're starting a, a full section. So for those who don't know, most law schools, you're broken into sections. I don't remember how many students are at Michigan anymore, but I want to say a starting class would have three to four sections, maybe four, 
of probably 80 to 90 people, I think. I hope I'm not way off base there. But essentially for a summer starters at the time, a full section started. And because you're there in summer, you're usually even more connected with this group because there isn't the sort of bustle of the rest of the college or the law school being there. But then I think regardless, you know, every school can change this, but the very like traditional law school way is that section of people, whatever, you know, if it's 70, 80, 90, you're all in the same core doctrinal classes together. So just to kind of add some context, what you said, you do really get to know this group because you're moving through torts and criminal procedure and property and all of that together and and add in the Socratic method of the teacher calling on everybody at some point, you do really start to see that diversity of experience and opinion come out in one one way or another. Yeah. And I, I could tell by the end of the year, because it's a solid year from May to May, you could tell that people were ready to you know, meet new people and interact with a, a different crowd. But even though that's the case, and I think that's natural in life to like, you know, you get to know your high school friends or college friends and you eventually move on. I think with summer starters, there was a real urge and excitement to meet the new people that they would have classes with, especially when you could choose your classes. And, you know, there, there are limitations on that. Like, it seems that law schools are always imposing some new restrictions. Like, at the time, we had to do transnational law. I would have taken it anyway, but you had to do it. And then I know that right after I left, it became like, they Gone called now. it. Yeah. Yeah. And they changed leg, it. leg reg and all those things. So yeah, they, they, they changed it. But like the ones you could pick, you, you know, I think there's a real sense of excitement and relief that I can go and now deal with new people and talk to new people and stuff. So yeah, that, that was a, that was a big part of that Michigan summer start program. You know, and I'm going to fast forward a bit. I want to be somewhat mindful of our time, not, not too mindful. Cause I have a couple things I still, I definitely want to hit as we keep talking, but if I were to fast forward a bit, so where does Foley and Lardner come in? Like, what does, when does Foley come on the scene? Is it is it through OCI? So actually, I I didn't have an interview with Foley at OCI. So for or people on campus interviewing for people who don't know what that means, but sorry, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. So for on campus interviews, I'll I'll just say it all the way out. But you basically get a bid list, and I knew I wanted to be at a large firm, so I was not going for like an internship with the government or anything else. I, I was pretty much just looking at the on campus interviews to do some kind of private practice. So Foley was on my radar to be sure. There's no hiding it. It's a huge firm. And in my day, I don't mean to sound old, but there since have become a number of other national firms on the market that have a presence in Detroit. But Foley was unique even when I was in law school because I think people knew that its Detroit office had like a lasting presence. It had been there since 2000. That was known. And it was known that it was a you know, prestigious firm that still has Midwestern roots as well. So in my mind, I wasn't it, just like when I decided to stick around, stay home for both law school and for undergrad, I was looking at Michigan firms staying in Michigan. And it's it's an interesting world. I think everybody in Michigan knows each other in the law field because it's just not as it's not as large of a market as New York or Chicago, DC, LA, etc. And so if you're a diligent law student trying to find the best job for you, I think it's inevitable you'll come across Foley and Lardner. So I did, but I'm, I was one of the unfortunate ones who did not in my bid list of ones like you rank and try to get them. I put it up there and I, I just didn't get it. So I actually never even had a initial interview. So instead I ended up, I had a summer position with Marathon in Finley, Ohio, which was excellent, really great experience. And I ended up at another large Michigan firm for uh, a number of years before transitioning to Foley. But um, I remember one of my classmates, Ryan Watkins, who's still with the firm, I'm pretty sure he's been with Foley the whole time. 
So I, I always used to pick his brain and ask him about the firm. And well, I'm saying I feel like I didn't do my homework because that. So you're a lateral to Foley. I'm just realizing this. And so talk generally, though, about you graduate from law school. You know, you started another firm in the Detroit area. It sounds like you knew that transactional or corporate was what you wanted to do. So did you just dive right in as a transactional attorney? And then when I pull you up, pull up your LinkedIn, I see it was, so you practiced for about four years and then you joined Foley, closing in on two years ago. But just, yeah, speak, speak a little bit more to that in general, just so we can get a sense of you and your kind of your trajectory. So for the benefit of, for people considering law school or even in law school and, and like, what should I do? And do I have to know my specialty? The answer, of course, is no, you don't. Some people don't even really know their specialty until they're a couple of years into practice. You know, most large firms will allow people to kind of figure that out. And I know fully definitely does. They give people the opportunity to experiment, work with a lot of different partners and see what's a good fit. For me, though, I approached law school and it was kind of that fear of the unknown, fear of uncertainty, which was fueled not just when my dad had gotten ill in 2008 when I was finishing high school, but also that also coincided with the recession. And it was really hard because, you know, my dad was in the hospital for, I think, something like a month. And he comes back, he goes to a, a major automotive supplier where he worked, and they laid him off like the day he got back. So, I mean, he had a really hard life for way more reasons than one. And in my mind, I was like, well, it's that much more meaningful, more poignant to uh, salient is probably the best word to go into a profession, to go into law school. And even before I was in law school, I would reach out to people. I was very self-motivated. I actually never mentioned this. I started studying for the LSAT within two days of finishing high school. I bought, I think it was the LSAT for Dummies book, ironically. I was visiting my family in Dubai. I had just turned 18. So I was, I was able to do that on my own, like travel on my own. And literally, I showed up at night, and I was there with my grandparents, and I was studying. So I actually spent my, my first vacation after high school studying. Did you take the LSAT early as well, or did you take it in that sort of normal, I don't know, junior is it junior year-ish time period of college that a lot of people take it? Yeah, I took it at the normal time. So I think it was, okay. in, in fact, it might have been my mom's birthday. It was in June of 2011. Funny story. The same. I, I remember. I should remember the date. It just the exact date escaped my mind for whatever reason. But I remember I learned how to ride a bicycle that day because I was a kid in Dubai, and it, it, summers can be like 120, 130 degrees outside. You don't typically ride bicycles. Some people do, but I, I didn't. So I never. That was a part of my childhood I didn't have. So you're a late, you're a late learner of how to ride a bicycle. Between that and the lamb story, I'm just like this is a, this is interesting stuff. <laughs> I'm remembering things as I go, but yeah, I, I learned how to ride a bicycle the night after the day, so the same day that I took the LSAT. That's amazing. Yeah, and the reason I asked you if you took it early is just the other day I'd heard in a, in a I don't know a, a forum to, to students to college students somebody say you know you actually can study for the LSAT a lot earlier than you would think, and I don't know how how good how long the score is good for. But somebody mentioned, yeah, like you could start studying quite early and actually take it earlier than you would think. So that that was interesting that you that you mentioned that. Part of it was too, the reason I did it within two days of finishing high school is I didn't want to rush and I knew this was what I wanted. So I, I studied for the LSAT probably 30 minutes once a week for I guess the three years or so in undergrad. And that way I didn't have to panic when I took the exam. That's an interesting tip for those who listen who it's you know, kind of not too late 
before. Okay. And also I have to be careful. I've done this occasionally on the show. It's called the path and the practice. I could spend forever on the path. We have to talk about your practice. So we're going to go a little bit long here if you if you don't mind, because we have to get there. I have to know, what do you do? What is your practice? Tell me about it. Yeah. Well, so the, the whole point about 08 and family issues was ahead of being in law school and then in law school, I asked people, how do you pick a career that is safe in law? And what I was told very consistently, so from very you know, different people, is do tax, immigration, or securities work. That's the advice that I got. And the way that I sorted that in my head is I don't want to do tax. It wasn't as interesting to me. I think it's very interesting, but it's just it wasn't what I wanted to do. Immigration is, is of course, extremely important and interesting, but I didn't want to do it because I thought it would be emotionally exhausting. Did not want to get involved in that. And I have enormous respect for people who do. So securities, that was appealing to me well before I ever even took SecReg as a class. What I was told is it's difficult, it's complex. People a lot of times don't want to do it. They're afraid of liability. And you just have to learn new things constantly. And the law changes constantly. You know, one administ- administration comes in and imposes these, you know, rules and regs. Another one comes and changes it all. So I was like, I was thinking about job security, no pun intended, which is why I wanted to do securities. So I started off with another large firm in Detroit. And it was actually my first day. And I won't go into names and details and whatever, but the very first day, I was supposed to have two days of computer training at my first firm. And I got to my desk for the first time ever and sat down as a law graduate for the first time ever. And within minutes, I think it was Cisco phones, my phone rings, and it's the head of the corporate department of the firm, who was one of like, there's a limited number of actual securities people at the firm, and he was one of them. So he picked up the phone, he goes, Zane, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've got computer training today and, and tomorrow. He goes, you don't need that. Let's get to work like right away. So he told me to dig up a form F1 for a Danish company. He's like, find any Danish company that's trying to list for an IPO and then strip everything out and we'll use it as a base for ours because we have an IPO. And you know, I asked him when he needed that. And I, I don't remember if it was the next day, but if it was not the next day, it was within two days. So I started running from day one. That's amazing. And a little bit. So one, I love that you shared that story. Things definitely happen like that. And, it's, and in a way, it's sort of the point. You want to jump in and be a lawyer, but it's also a bit anxiety producing. Just a little bit. And I think it's one of those things that that law students are like, but what I, I don't know what's going on. And yeah, you're not. You're just gonna figure, you're just gonna figure it out. And so a couple final things I, I want to touch on is what is your advice? So what did you do to learn about securities or your broader transactional practice? I mean, obviously you work with people, you pick things up, but any reflections or advice as to how to close that gap? Definitely. And I I just wanted to plug for Foley because this is the Foley podcast. First off, I've been extraordinarily happy. There are people who will make moves in their career. Moving to Foley, other than you know, marrying my wife is the best thing that I've ever done, best decision I ever made. And it's been so impactful for the two of us just because it's it's opened up so many doors and the people at Foley are, I mean, I, I, I'm happy with all of my prior work experience and it's not at all to disparage anybody I've worked for in the past, but Foley is just special. The people here are super energetic and, and they're all brilliant and have amazing backgrounds. Larry Perlman in the photo, ironically, that you shared on LinkedIn, I had just gotten him like a week prior on some other deal where I needed um, employment advice, employment law advice. And I saw his bio because he said, go blue. And he was undergrad, medical school and law school at Michigan. Just unbelievable. And this is how people just are at Foley. So it's been 
it's been such an inclusive environment as well. They don't just say one thing and then do another. They, they're committed to their values. They're committed to being better each and every day. And it's just been such a, an exciting transition. And, and the clients here are incredible. So what I would tell people, especially if they're fortunate enough, I'll say to start off at Foley, either as a summer associate or even as a first year or as a lateral many years in, is try to get to know people as soon as possible. I was so lucky in the Detroit office. We have great mentors, including Steve Hilfinger for me, John Witt, a couple other people who immediately when I started at Foley, they're like, well, you need to be talking to Kerry Long in San Diego. And you need to be talking to Kurt Creeley and Megan Odronic down in Tampa. And you need to be talking to Pat Doherty in Chicago and, and so forth. And of course, all the folks in Milwaukee and Boston as well, because I also do investment management work. So fund formation, side letters, that kind of thing. I was plugged in in that first week and I was doing work for all of those offices, for San Diego, for Tampa, for Boston, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Detroit. So if you get to know people and if you find those mentors, I, I didn't even have to, frankly, foley has been so turnkey for me in the sense that I show up and the firm has made everything easy. It's, it's introduced me to all the right people. But to the extent that you don't have the exact same experience, what I would say is find your mentors, you know, network with them immediately when you arrive for whatever level that is, summer associate, associate, et cetera. And ask them, like, you know, here are my interests. Here's my expertise. With whom should I be speaking about this? What's, and- your, what's your recommendation? Right. Yeah. As you as you say, that just makes me think about, because you, you probably have encountered the same thing. Law students ask you, like, how do I tell firms apart? What should I do? And it really speaks to, you're going to just have to meet some of the people there. And so, yes, you can scour the websites. You can read the bios. But that whole getting a chance to meet people, whether it be on campus interviewing or later interviewing as a lateral, that's going to be what starts giving you some indication of, will this work for me? Will I feel comfortable asking questions if you just started and it's day one? It sounds like you figured out the F1 for the, the company that was issuing its IPO, but I'm certain you had to ask a lot of questions. And I hope that you were able to do that. And that's and also everything you just said warms my talent management professional heart because I must say I've had a number of people say, oh my gosh, Alexis, you have to get Zane on the podcast. So not to stereotype lateral attorneys, but it had not dawned on me that you were a, a lateral at, at the firm. And as someone who had lateraled in, in her prior life, you know, it can actually be very hard to sort of feel plugged in. And so I love what you said about the firm making you really feel welcome and in such a short period of time, connecting you with so many people across, you know, some of our 21 offices in the U.S. So that's just, and also I just appreciate the Foley propaganda in general. Didn't even have to send you a script. It's just really helpful for me here on the podcast, but I'm just kidding, obviously. Yeah, no, I mean, but to be fair and blunt about it, it's just been a great, great experience for me personally. And the one thing that I will say is I've worked at a number of different places in my life and not even in just in law, but like, you know, I was a writing consultant in undergrad at their writing center. I did research for a couple of professors, both in undergrad and in law school. I was a banking clerk at another firm in Detroit before, as I mentioned. What you learn over time is that it's not even just the substance of the work that you do. So, you know, we're lawyers, we do legal work, but it really is how cohesively is your company or firm run in terms of people interacting with each other from all different both walks of life and capacities. Foley is so great because even with this really difficult year, we've held on. I can't say we, but I say we on behalf of the firm. Foley has held on to everybody, its employees, its staff, and it's prioritized them. It's prioritized its people. And, you know, every book I've ever read, like a good example is Good to Great by Jim Collins, which was at the recommendation of people at Foley. Like, I love that I get book recommendations from my, my mentors at the firm. People have time to read. Yeah, they prioritize 
couple other things outside of practice. No, it really is a testament, but go ahead. Yeah, the right people counts. I don't care where you are. I don't care what the roles are. And when, when people get along and they work together and they have a common goal, it makes you excited to start every day. And speaking about transactional work, then just for a minute, it's complicated. You will not know what you're doing immediately. And what makes you a good lawyer is figuring it out. That's why you're the smart person that they hired. It's because you have the background, you have the education, you have the fundamentals to be able to learn what you do. I could actually also give a couple practical things that I think that all all law students and associates could take. Share it. You can't say that and not. You have to. Come on. What are they? <laughs> yeah. Learn how to use the resources available to you. And that will vary from firm to firm. I know that from personal experience. So like you may not have IntelliJize, which is one really great search database at one firm and you may have it at another. But if you have it and if you have, you know, practical law, Bloomberg, LexisNexis, whatever, learn how to use those. And when people offer you trainings, take them and do them. And if you have downtime where you're not billing time because the billable day is so important, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that. I think that law students probably understand that, but learn how to use your resources because if you do that, it'll help you get to the answer that much faster. And I think too often early on, like when I was younger, I didn't know the right place to start. So especially if you can find younger folks like associates to ask like, oh, well, if you were to ask me, and I I offer this actually actively to anybody at Foley who listens to this, if you don't know how to use those databases, if you don't know how to start a securities project, find someone with a couple years of experience and ask them how they did it. And that's how I was trained. So people are like, well, this is how I did it. And this is the database I used. And here, even down to, I was trained which bookmarks I should have on on my bookmark bar. I know that seems like such a minor point, but if you have the right things like I keep SEC comprehensive search, I keep the SEC full text search, I keep IntelliJize. And I just know that I'm going to have to go and find those things, whatever it is, precedent filings, rules, treatises. And I just keep those there because then I go straight to the most likely spot first. And I think that's also an important ethic to develop from the billable perspective, because then, you know, you're giving clients what they need as quickly as possible and as thoroughly as possible. And, you know, you're not spinning your wheels or like learning on the go. You have to learn on the go to some extent, to some level, and you'll always, of course, get faster with time. But that's huge. So I'm really grateful that I was shown literally what sites to bookmark, how to use them, who are the representatives who can train you, do all those things. And even in a state like Michigan, we don't have CLE in Michigan, continuing legal education. So that means we don't we're not obligated to sit in on webinars and stuff and to get the credits to you know maintain our our license in good standing with the state. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do CLE in a state like Michigan. You have to keep learning. And that is such great advice. I talk to a lot of law students, but for example, that is not advice I'm capable of giving. I have never been a transactional lawyer. I've never been an SEC lawyer. I've literally never heard of IntelliJize. But the fact that you should look to those who are a little bit ahead of you, ask for their advice. And I think that the biggest thing is people are afraid to ask and they're afraid to show that they don't know something. But I think another theme of this podcast is that we all just have to be open that we're still learning and remain curious and not be afraid to ask the question. And in many ways, that's what your client is paying you to do. And you're right, we are up against time a little bit, but I will, as my my second to last question for you, and the last one's easy, it's about if people can reach out to you, but is there anything else that either we did not cover that you would like to add or just some any general sort of last parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Yeah, I guess I'll have a series of bullet points, things that 
I wish I knew or that I, I think would be helpful. I used to be big into physical health, like exercise, eating right, all that stuff. I was in really good shape through the end of undergrad. And even in law school, I look back and I tried, like I made an effort, but it tapered off over time. So by the time I was studying for the bar exam and then starting practice, in my mind, I just I guess I felt like I couldn't make mistakes at work and I had to give all of my time to work. And I'm not saying don't have strong work ethic and don't really put your heart and soul into what you do. But especially nowadays, you see these these narratives about mental health is the obvious one to raise, but also physical health, like taking care of yourself. I wish I knew that better and I wish I had better discipline. And the, the only way to have good discipline is to develop habits. And I've heard different people say different time periods. Most recently, it was it takes two weeks of doing something consistently to have a good habit. But if you did cardio before, like stationary bike, running outside, treadmill, keep on doing it do yoga, buy yourself a yoga mat, keep it by your desk. You do have time. I am still guilty of this and hypocritical to say it, but I tell myself so many times, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to do this. You do and you should, and you should slow everything down. When you're doing work and there are harsh deadlines, that's the time it is to be fast. And sometimes it'll feel like that's your entire life because there's a period where it's you know very busy, but it's all about time management. And that is the biggest thing that to this day, I still need to learn. And that's that's for all of the values you have in your life, not just at your job. But the thing is, it comes back around because when you're healthier physically, you know, and you're hydrating well and, and eating the right food. You're yeah. going to have the smarter response. And that, that's so important, the advice to take to take care of yourself. We could do a whole nother podcast on that. But I, I love that you highlight that because I think it's something we have to stress and remind, remind people of. Well, and with that, and we could talk for a lot longer. I have this suspicion that I should have asked a lot more about your family and all these other things. We may need to do a part two one day. But with that, I'll just end it by asking if people have you know questions for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Oh, absolutely. Would love to do that. Don't want to belabor the the answer, which is yes. But I will say that I love to mentor as much as I love to be mentored. And I think that I'll make a, a funny little point. There's that book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Pay it forward. It's such a big thing. And while I'm, while I'm at it, I'll, I wanted to make one more point about life advice. Keep in touch with your friends, even if they're from kindergarten, because you never know where they end up. And especially if they're not lawyers. Boy, what a great way to develop your book of uh, business and your practice if you if you stay with those people. So maintain those relationships in your life. And and yes, I'm happy to be a relationship in anybody's life in any way that they want. You know, I'll, I'll talk to you about law school. I'll talk to you about um, practicing it fully, happily. So all my information's on the website and I am on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Zane. That is fantastic advice. And I hope that our listeners take you up on that offer. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was a real honor. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Zane. I'm recording a bit of an update because a few months after I featured him on the show, he got an opportunity to go in-house. Zane is now legal counsel for North America at Magna Electronics. Fortunately, he remains a big fan of Foley and Lardner. So if you have questions about him or the experiences he had at the firm, please feel free to reach out to him over LinkedIn. And also we at Foley wish him nothing but the best on his latest endeavor. And I very much appreciate you listening to my conversation with him. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship 
Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.